Welcome to Divergent Unicorns, a podcast created to provide actionable steps to people that have been typically underrepresented in the venture and startup landscape. I'm your host, Behavia Stewart. And I'm your host, Ema Essien. We are both HBCU VC fellows and have experience in venture capital. On this episode, we have Mercedes Bent, partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners, where she focuses mainly on early stage consumer startups. She has prior experience working as a general manager at General Assembly and is a graduate of Harvard University with her bachelor's degree and Stanford with her master's in MBA. Let's hop on into the interview. So we're here with Mercedes Bent. Mercedes, so you have prior experience working in asset management and within the education space. What initially sparked your interest in venture capital? I first got uh, interested in, uh, you know, more broadly the field of entrepreneurship um, as when I was younger, as a kid, I, you know, come from a family of entrepreneurs at an early stage. My family was, uh, my dad, he's a software engineer, was introducing me to web development. And as a child, we would always discuss, you know, ideas around the table um, at dinner time. When I was younger, in fact, I actually thought that everybody was a, was entrepreneurs and kind of did this talking about ideas when I was young. So while I didn't actually know what venture capital was for a pretty long time until maybe, I don't know, maybe a few years ago. I It was definitely after I graduated college, maybe eight years ago, I first heard about it. I think I've always kind of been in the entrepreneurial family. That's pretty interesting. Um, so like even during your undergrad and graduate experience, um, you had no exposure to like the VC landscape? In my undergraduate, I did not have exposure to it. Um, I I do remember there were a couple of students from my uh, class at Harvard who did end up going into venture capital. But I remember thinking at the time I had no idea what they were doing. Um, you know, I <laughs> was working at the Federal Reserve and then I went to Goldman. So those were kind of more traditional finance. I remember people going into this thing where they said they were going to be doing investing in small businesses or startups, and I didn't really understand it. Um, but by the time I went to graduate school, which was about you know seven years later, I they um, definitely knew a lot about venture capital by that time because I had worked at a venture back startup uh, starting in 2012. So can you tell us a little bit about your path to becoming a partner at Lightspeed Ventures? Like what made you a perfect fit for this role? I know you mentioned you had prior experience working in the in finance, but then also at a startup. Yeah, and exactly. And I think that venture capital is a great melding of the two fields. On the one hand, I had done finance at the Federal Reserve and Goldman. And on the other hand, I had worked for venture-backed startups, including General Assembly and a virtual reality startup. So having experience as an operator and as a financier, I was able to um, kind of understand more about how venture capital was going to, and the essence of it was really about growing these companies. So I found Lightspeed um, maybe, gosh, I think I first got introduced to Lightspeed about two years ago. And um, one of the uh, people at Lightspeed had reached out to me and said, you know, let's grab coffee, let's chat. And I was so interested to learn more about them since they're a great firm. And ultimately, what really convinced me that Lightspeed was a place for me, I remember when I went in um, for my interviews, I was pitching, you know, I've 
uh, a couple of different companies, some ed tech companies and some multicultural consumer products. And I ended up pitching a hair weave company. Um, and, you know, I was really thinking if this firm, you know, is into me uh, pitching this hair weave company, then I think this is going to be the right place for me. And they loved it. So it was kind of set after that. You were pitching the companies like as like an investment thesis almost or? Yep, exactly. Yeah, that was part of the interview. Mm -hmm. And so currently your primary focus is investing into early stage consumer companies. So from your experience or your perspective, what makes a great consumer startup? I think, well, so consumer is super broad, but I think one thing that all consumer startups share in common the really great ones is that they have a super innate sense of who their customer is. They know their customer inside and out. Um, you know, they've done hundreds of customer interviews. They understand the needs and wants and desires and pain points that their customers face on a daily basis. And they didn't set out to really build a product because they thought there was a cool technology or that they had themselves a problem that they needed to Bill to solve, they are solving the problem of customers that they actually met and listened to. I think there's a big distinction between building something for yourself versus building it for others. And a lot of times people build things just for themselves, but the best consumer startups, you know, really test and refine all of their assumptions. So like from your perspective, creating, well, solving problems for yourself isn't like a good approach? Or do you think maybe it is a good approach if you validate it with other customers so that you know it's like an actual problem that other people are experiencing? Exactly. Yeah, the latter. I think that you need to validate your own problems with others and make sure it's not just you. Okay, that makes sense. From your experience, what are some common mistakes or pitfalls that startups face when raising funding, would you say? And like, what can they possibly do to overcome them? I think one of the biggest hurdles to overcome in fundraising is really being a great storyteller. And I would say that I myself am not someone who is a wonderful storyteller, that every time a founder walks in the room who is really skilled in this way, it, it's night and day. Um, I think being able to do a couple of things are important in storytelling. One, being able to craft a narrative about your progress to date and where you're going in the future that sounds both realistic on the one hand of where you're at and is you know totally transparent and honest but on the other hand painting a picture of the future that is really exciting and that is a has a big potential and you know that's what all investors want to hear i think the other component of storytelling that is um you know that folks really skilled storytellers we've been effortlessly is their story about why they are the perfect people to be starting this company and why nobody else, you know, should have been the person. I talk about um, this concept of founder product fit. You know, people always talk about product market fit, and that is definitely something you want to achieve with your startup. But at the very earliest stages, I also look for founder product fit, where I am saying to myself, wow, because of this person's passion, because of their experience to date, their background, there's really no other person that should be, that could have been starting a better company than this person. Do you find that some founders try to hide like their problems that they may, may be facing like with growing their startup? 
Yeah. And I think that's natural. I mean, um, you know, I think it's completely natural to not want to reveal every problem to somebody that you first meet. I think that, you know, another uh, concept I think about a lot is this thing um, I call the vulnerability versus confidence trade-off. A lot of founders, when they come in, they want to seem extremely confident and that's totally understandable why. But sometimes the amount that they want to appear confident and in control and everything's going well at the startup can actually hinder and inhibit their ability to be vulnerable about where some of the issues are and actually get feedback and help that could help them solve some of those issues. It's it's a super, you know, delicate balance to strike. But when I see founders that manage the vulnerability trade-off confident vulnerability confidence trade-off really well, I am always really impressed. And then when you say founder product fit, that's more so like assessing the team and ensuring that they have like the right the right capabilities to help the startup become successful? Exactly. Yeah. I think it's about, um, you know, working with the, it's kind of really just realizing that it's, it's not even so much about the skills to make the startup successful. I guess that's one part of it, but it's really the, their story and their brand and how that fits with what they're building. Like if a, um, if somebody who's worked at Cisco for, you know, um, uh, or better yet, I'll do it the other way around. If somebody who's worked at, say, um, you know, a consumer startup um, for many years, say they were working at Airbnb or something, suddenly comes and for, you know, say they were working there the last 10 years, now they suddenly come and they say they want to build a networking, you know, security uh, system. Uh, that's going to be a little bit, you know, a little bit head scratcher. Like, why are you the person that should be starting this? That isn't really your your background. Maybe they worked on that space at Airbnb, but largely, you know, it's a consumer company without, um, you know, a lot of network security problems. So there's just interesting kind of, you know, questions about why is that person the right fit? So from your experience as like a VC or even a startup founder, like, what do you think about the saying that just because you come up with the idea for the company doesn't necessarily mean you're like the right CEO or yeah, like maybe you shouldn't be the actual CEO of the company because your, I guess, skill set isn't there. I don't know, or something along those lines. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, I think that not everybody, an idea, just having an idea is not the same as being able to execute and uh, run a large company. I think often the idea people Um, And and it's not only that a person is an idea person or an execution person, people can have both skill sets and, you know, and and be great at both. But many times for all types of founders, you know, early stage founders, there's a a moment when as you're approaching series A, B, C, where the skill sets that got you there to date are not going to be the skills that take you where you need to be in the future. So in a lot of the early phases of a company, you know, in terms of finding product market fit, there's a lot of grit, there's a lot of hustle, there's creativity, there's growth hacks that get you to finding product market fit into having, you know, the right, the right company. And a lot of times it can be very individualistic in nature, that type of work. But then as the company is scaling and enters, you know, hyper growth scale phase, then you're, you know, needing to lead and manage 10 direct reports. You need to keep them on quarterly planning. You need to help the people understand how to actually hit the metrics that they hit. They need, you need to architect the infrastructure of a company 
that is growing from you know 100 million to 200 million in revenue. Those are very different skill sets than the it can be. They're not always, but those are often different skill sets, and not always the same person is great at both. So I think being really honest and having self awareness about your deficiencies is the and where you need to level up is the most important thing a founder can do because then you can surround yourself with people who do have those skill sets. But if you are not aware that you're not good at those things, you can be in a lot of trouble. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and sometimes it's very hard to like think through that. Um, I wanted to say one thing that you mentioned earlier was your experience at General Assembly and also at the VR and AR startup. You mentioned that you are an operator. So like, what does that mean to you? Uh, an operator is, to me, somebody that has had operational experience building a company. Um, so any that is a pretty broad term. And given that I helped build a company, um, I definitely have operator experience. Today, I am technically no longer an operator. Now I'm an investor. And so I have operational experience, experience as an operator, but today I'm an investor. From your, your experience now as an investor, like what are some common challenges that you see from startups when it comes to scaling their business? And how do you as an investor help them overcome those challenges? Yeah, I think the challenges, it really depends stage by stage, you know, what stage of the company is at, if it's at that initial early product market fit, or if it's in hyper growth, or if it's in mature, you know, public company uh, stage, there's all different challenges. But for the companies that I work with, um, which I most often work with companies that are about the series A, which is that they found some product market fit, and now they are trying to scale it into a bigger company. I think some of the you know challenges they they have are kind of transitioning from that uh, early stage you know hustle you know skunk works anything goes um, kind of skill set to more team building and team formation um, recruiting executives to your company is always a huge challenge. I mean, really top quality executives are typically happy where they're at, they've got a big salary, they're at a big name brand. So convincing them to leave to come work with you sometimes at a lower salary is is a big you know struggle. And that's where, once again, the founder's ability to sell and storytell can be really important. Um, so between executive recruiting, leveling up to a different type of stage that your company is at, and then also just really putting in kind of the, you know, um, how to understanding kind of a repeatable go-to-market process. Oftentimes what worked in where you found product market fit with your first audience doesn't always work exactly the same when you go to a new audience or a new market. And so figuring out how you have to, you know, ideally it works, but sometimes you have to adopt and shift and and change the go-to-market process a bit. And so figuring out how to really build a sales team or a go-to-market organization that can do that is a big struggle um, and challenge as well. Do you think that evolving their go-to-market pro process, it's due to like consumers' expectations evolving over time? I think uh, that can definitely be part of it. Um, I think that finding a kind of repeatable go-to-market motion 
the way I was meant it was a little bit more about kind of internal sales structure, how you set it up, how you train new members, how you on-ramp new team members. Oftentimes you'll have kind of a really successful salesperson um, who is, you know, just like your all-star salesperson, but then how do you get the next two, three, four or five people to be able to achieve and hit plan and hit quota as well? Um, and how do you get them to ramp up effectively? A lot of founders go through a number of salespeople before they really find the right process and training that works. So I see that a market that you are really passionate about from your experience within the education space and as a venture capitalist is the virtual and augmented reality market. So are there any trends or industries that you can see VR and AR technology causing disruption amongst in the near future? Yeah. And I would say, you know, this is a space that I was probably more passionate about maybe four years ago um, when I was getting into the field. I think that the technology um, to date is a super cool technology. And I still really hope that we'll have AR glasses, um, you know, that that work well in the, the future. I just saw, you know, the other day that Facebook has a new partnership with Plessy to create some new AR glasses. Um, so that's really exciting to see that big companies are still working on it. Um, but I do think that one of the things about VR AR is that in many ways it has been a technology in search of a problem to solve and versus a, you know, a solution solving a problem um, that kind of existed. And so I do think, you know, it's a good question, like where are the areas where it can most be of help. I think right now there's two areas that I see um, VR, AR, and VR and AR are pretty different, but you know, the XR uh, field having success in. One is on the enterprise side, um, companies like Upskill are allowing uh, factory workers to use augmented reality to kind of guide some of what they, the work that they do on, you know, a manufacturing floor. And so, you know, a floor factory worker will put on AR glasses and be, you know, working on a Boeing airplane. And normally, you know, to figure out what to do if you're new on the job, you're going to be reading a manual, you're going to have someone standing there telling you what to do. And what the AR glasses can allow you to do is to have kind of guidance about, okay, here's where this, you know, piece and bolt goes, and this is what to do next. And so I think that um, kind of, you know, factory floor and manufacturing use case is a really successful one for AR. Um, in VR, I've also seen some interesting things on the consumer side and entertainment. Uh, you know, prior to coronavirus, there was, uh, there were companies doing VR arcades that were um, doing fairly well. And, you know, that's just an escapism, allow people to have fun, kind of get out of the house and, and explore something new that they can try. So that um, those are two interesting use cases. I'm excited to see more over the next few years as the hardware and kind of platform ecosystem really develops. Given the current coronavirus pandemic, do you see, do you think that this technology could have like an impact on online education, maybe? Definitely. We're seeing a lot of uh, impacts uh, in with online education from everything from preschool to, you know, K to 12 learners to higher education, college, 
um, to corporate learning. There's a ton that has been affected. I saw a stat the other day, 87% of the world's school age population is out of school right now. And so everyone is having to switch over to online learning companies, you know, that are provide homeschooling resources, content, or, you know, learning management systems are seeing huge spikes, you know, 20, 30x uh, usage levels that are normal. So this is definitely a field that's being impacted pretty heavily by coronavirus. Cool. And so your bio mentions, I don't have to wait on the sidelines and keep hoping more women and Black and Hispanic founders get funded. I realized I could go and be a part of the solution. Can you explain from your perspective why it is important that more minorities receive funding? Totally. Yeah. I mean, beyond kind of the personal passion and standpoint and from a perspective of, you know, equality and rights and why I think that side is important, even if you just look at it from a business perspective, you know, there's tons of research that says more diverse teams produce higher returns. And um, there's, you know, uh, different venture capital firms have even shown that their female founders have produced higher returns as a group than their male founders. And so whichever way you slice it, I think the research is pretty clear that um, you know higher investment returns and business outcomes come from greater diversity. The reason being because you have more people, you challenge you know the, the thought per- process and the assumptions that people don't realize that they have. And so you're forced to come up with more creative solutions that include more people in yours. You know, going back to that thing we talked about, is it your problem or is it a validated problem that other people are facing? And if you don't have a diverse team, you can't actually always be clear in either the diligence of assessing a company or in, um, you know, the understanding if the problem really is one for a wide group. So I could go into tons of reasons, but I think that business case alone is should, you know, convince everybody. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. And so one last question before you go, um, do you have any resource recommendations for navigating navigating the venture or the startup space, like your favorite book, website, or author? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, you know, when I was first, so specifically venture or more like the startup world and startup ecosystem? Yeah, I think, yeah, the startup world and ecosystem. Yeah, because I think it's really important to first have a fundamental understanding of the startup ecosystem um, before even, you know, really considering venture. Um, so when I was first getting into the startup world back in, you know, 2011, I was doing a lot of uh, uh, reading of folks like Paul Graham and his essays. Um, I was constantly reading TechCrunch to understand the latest startup news. I think if you read the blogs of many venture capitalists who you know put out their writing, that's a great resource as well. Um, and so a couple of founders blog as well. They don't have quite as much time, of course, to, to blog and write, but they tweet a good bit. And I've found that startup Twitter and VC Twitter is a really great place to learn more about the ecosystem and what's going on. Um, and then finally, you know, getting out there in person. I mean, right now this is impossible, but, you know, uh, when I was also getting into the startup ecosystem, going to meetups and going to in-person events, you know, a lot of cities are hosting multiple events a day. And so if you want to meet people and get out there, you know, I was going to Ruby on Rails meetups and UX designer meetups and product manager meetups and just understanding what they're, what they were working on, hackathons. Those are all just kind of great way resources to throw yourself into the community. 
Yeah, thank you uh, for your time today, of course, and then also all of the knowledge and allowing me to pick your brain. Sure, of course. Well, um, thank you for your time and look forward to connecting some more after this. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. Please make sure to subscribe, like, rate, and share this episode with a friend.